who are you? How might you answer that question? Someone asked you, who are you? Certainly there's your name, there's your age, there's your current circumstances, probably the makeup of your household, who you live with, how you're spending your time, if you're employed, how you're employed, your hobbies and your interests. But then there are your aspirations, your fears, your passions, your commitments. And now we're getting closer to answering the question, who are you really? I invite you to turn with me to Esther chapter 4, verse 1. You can find it on page 446 in the first half of the Pew Bible, uh, just to the left of Psalms and Job. This is our, our fourth week in the book of Esther, but we don't really know Esther yet. Esther didn't appear until chapter 2, and then she wasn't named once in chapter 3. So what do we know about Esther from chapter 2? Well, she's, she's a Jewish woman living in the, in the Far East around the year 474 B.C. So it's been more than 60 years since the Persians had, had conquered the Babylonians and had liberated the Jews. Well, liberated, at least in the sense that the Jews were permitted to return to the land of Israel and to begin to rebuild their nation. But like the orphan Esther and her older cousin Mordecai who raised her as his daughter, most of the Jews did not return to Israel when given the opportunity. And as chapter 4 begins, it has now been five years since Esther was chosen to be the new queen of Persia. And the king of Persia, King Ahasuerus, at the end of chapter 3, he just signed the death sentence for every Jew on the face of the earth, not knowing that his queen, Queen Esther, is herself, a Jew. She has kept her heritage a secret from everyone around her. She's been living as a pagan, but does she consider that to be the real her? She's the only person in the book who is identified as having two names, the Hebrew name Hadassah and the Persian name Esther. So is she Hadassah the Jew or is she Esther the pagan? Is there even any legitimacy to claiming that the real you can be hidden from those around you? Or is it really just yourself that you're deceiving in that case? Well, Esther, she's about to be pressed to make a decision about who she really is. Or put differently, a decision about who she now is going to be. Esther, chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to begin reading the first three verses aloud. Hear the word of the Lord to you. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth in ashes. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word, we openly acknowledge our dependence upon you for right understanding. By the Holy Spirit, apply your word to our hearts that we may be changed. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. So Mordecai, he heard about the edict issued to annihilate his people. 
And in response to this word, he, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. All of this, of course, is a, an expression of great sorrow and distress. We read of such expressions as this throughout the Old Testament, and not merely among the people of Israel. We read the same thing among the pagans. For example, you, you might recall how the Ninevites responded to the announcement from the prophet Jonah that God was going to destroy Nineveh. Not only did their pagan king call for all the people to fast from food and drink and to put on sackcloth, the cloth of a sack, the clothing of a street beggar, but the king himself, the king of Nineveh, he did the same thing. And he even sat in ashes. Ashes being an acknowledgement that all are from to dust, and to dust all return, ashes to ashes. And thus, it's, it's a way to grieve over a death sentence. Mordecai now does this publicly, taking his place at the, the entrance of the king's gate, but not within that building, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. It's the only smiling, happy people are allowed to be in the presence of the king and his officials. They don't like to hear about reality. But Mordecai complies with that law. He can, here we see him again. He continues to be a model citizen. Despite the claims of Haman regarding the Jews, Mordecai does obey the king's laws. Well, that is all but one law. The one law that would have required Mordecai the Benjaminite to, to bow down and pay homage to Haman the Agagite, a descendant of Agag, the ancient enemy of God and his people. Mordecai could not do that. And now all his people are going to die. Even though all of this has, has come about as a result of Mordecai's decision to take a stand, it's not just Mordecai who's giving expression to this sorrow and distress. For, for many of the Jews from all across the vast kingdom of Persia lay in sackcloth and ashes, mourning with fasting and weeping and lamenting. But something is conspicuously missing from this description in chapter 4. There are two things that the reader of the Old Testament expects to see accompanying this language of fasting and accompanying this language of laying in sackcloth and ashes. What are those two things? Well, the first is prayer. Do you notice that there's no explicit mention of prayer in this chapter? There's no explicit mention of prayer in this book. Not only that, there's no explicit mention of God in the book of Esther. It's a glaring omission clearly designed by the author to draw us in so we get to ask questions about what's going on here, but also to make us ask the question, where is God? And as we ask that question, as we read the account of Esther as it unfolds, we ask, where is God? We begin to see exactly where God is. He is with His people as they turn to and rely on Him. So, of course, the people were praying for God's deliverance at this critical moment. That's what they're doing with their fasting and their sackcloth and ashes. In addition to prayer, the other thing that we expect to see here, accompanying fasting and laying in sackcloth and ashes, is repentance. Repentance. Consider again the pagan king of Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3. As the pagan king calls for a fast and for grieving with sackcloth and ashes, all of that was ultimately to serve both prayer and repentance, as he commanded, let them call out mightily to God, praying for deliverance, and let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. 
repenting of their sins, prayer and repentance. Now you might say, well, well, in that context, in the context of Nineveh, repentance was obviously called for. The destruction of Nineveh was going to be God's judgment upon that sinful nation. But this threat here in, in Esther chapter 4, this threat of annihilation for the Jews, that wouldn't have been understood as an act of God's judgment upon them, right? Or would it? Remember the historical context of Esther. The only Jews in the story have been Mordecai and Esther, who, like the majority of the Jews of that time, had ignored God's requirement to return and to dwell in the land of Israel. Not only that, but these two Jews that we've read about, they've intentionally hidden their Jewishness from those around them. Clearly not honoring the lifestyle that God required of His people that would have undeniably marked them out as distinct from the pagans around them. We also know that the events of Esther, they're unfolding in between the events recorded in the first six chapters and the last three chapters of Ezra. Between chapter 6 and chapter 7 is where Esther falls between 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra. And in Ezra, the Jews are called to repent, to weep bitterly over their failure to live according to God's law. Most especially, they're called to repent in regard to having married worshipers of pagan gods, like Esther had done. The Jews likely did see Ahasuerus' edict as God's punishment upon them for their waywardness. And the narrator, he seems to, to further indicate this by alluding to the second chapter of Joel. See, not long before the time of Esther, we don't know exactly when Joel was written, but not long before the time of Esther, God had warned the Jews of coming judgment. And using the exact same phrase that we see here in verse 3 of Esther 4, God commanded His people in Joel 2 to return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. What's about to happen? That's exactly what the people are doing in Esther chapter 4. They're obeying the command given them in Joel chapter 2. The command to fast and to pray and to repent. We, of course, are, are no less sinful than the people of Joel's day or Esther's day. And thus we are no less dependent on God's mercy and grace, both for our well-being in this life, but ultimately even more so for the eternal life to come. And so for us, just as it was for Joel's time and Esther's time, for us, it's right to openly express our need for God's mercy and grace. If not through fasting and weeping and lamenting, well, certainly through prayer and certainly through repentance as we rend our hearts and not just our garments, as we turn from our evil way. It is right to openly express our need for God's mercy and grace through prayer and through repentance. Picking up in verse 4, hopefully with your Bible still open before you, Esther 4, verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs, so those who attend to her, came and told her, that is about Mordecai, the queen was deeply distressed. That is, she's distressed over his display of distress. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. She doesn't yet know why he's distressed. She doesn't even inquire as to why. She just wants him to stop making a spectacle of himself. After all, he's the one who taught her 
But the nail that sticks out is the one that gets hammered down. They needed to, to blend in. They needed to not draw attention to themselves. They needed to not stick out. But Mordecai here does not accept the covering that she provides him. So, verse 5, Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered Hathak to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. She doesn't know. This speaks to how separated Esther has become from her people over the last five years. Verse 6, Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, sticking out for all the world to see. Verse 7, and Mordecai told Hathak all that had happened to him, the whole ordeal with Haman, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. The exact sum of money that Haman was going to pay the king. Recall, that's an exorbitant sum of money. Like two-thirds what the entire kingdom of Persia would bring in in taxes in a given year. Haman presumably intends to acquire this ridiculous amount of money. How? By plundering the possessions of the Jews as they're annihilated. It's interesting that this is explicitly called out in this report from Mordecai to Esther. Perhaps it's emphasizing both the driving motivation of King Ahasuerus in issuing this wicked edict, as well as it speaks to the impossibility of redeeming the lives of the Jews through some other means. They could not come up with those funds. Verse 8. Mordecai also gave Hathak a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that Hathak might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. In other words, the, the time for remaining silent about her heritage, the time for living like a chameleon must end. She must stand up and be counted. She must declare herself to be Hadassah the Jew not just Esther the pagan. Verse 9. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So how did she respond? Verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak, commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. In case you're wondering, ancient historians confirm that this really was the law in Persia and in media before that. Esther is not exaggerating. And her status as queen, well, that guarantees her nothing as she approaches the king. For one thing, she hasn't even been, been called for into his presence for, for a month now. Clearly, the king's delight in her has cooled. In chapter 1, we saw this king depose and discard his queen, Queen Vashti, simply for refusing to appear before him. And now Esther's just going to publicly defy the law about not appearing uninvited? And she's going to do so for the purpose of condemning the edict that he has just published throughout his entire kingdom? calling for him to repeal it? There's no reason to think that this is going to go well. And so, she does not agree to go. I wonder if this reminds you of anyone else in the Bible. 
having lived 40 years separated from his people as a fugitive in the wilderness east of Egypt, God suddenly appeared to Moses, commanding him to put his life on the line by coming before the most powerful man on earth, to plead with him for the deliverance of God's people. Very similar. And Moses refused. Not once, not twice, but at least five times, Moses, Moses either drags his feet or, or flat out says, send someone else. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. But of course, that's not the end of that story. After the, the fifth such exchange between Moses and God, Moses stopped dragging his feet. He obeyed, putting his relatively comfortable life as a shepherd on the line. And through that scary, risky obedience... God delivered his people. I wonder if you find that encouraging. There are certainly individuals in history who appear unafraid to risk their lives in obedience to God. But not Moses and Esther. Maybe that's how you think of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a little bit before this. During their time in exile in the same region as Esther. Maybe that's how you think of, of Stephen or the apostles in the New Testament, unafraid to risk their lives in obedience to God. We should be stirred on by those bold examples of Daniel and his friends, Stephen and the apostles, but we should also be encouraged that any hesitancy to stand up and speak out, any hesitancy we feel for that, it's not unusual and it need not be debilitating. Like the initial refusals of the two great deliverers of God's people in the Old Testament, the initial refusals of Moses and of Esther, our past refusals to speak out when we know that we should have do not mean that we cannot make a different decision going forward. God uses crooked sticks like us to make straight lines. Verse 12. They told Mordecai what Esther had said unwilling to risk her life. Verse 13, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. There's a lot in verse 14. Two main questions emerge as we read it. The first question is why Mordecai is so certain that relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place if Esther remains silent. Second question is, in that case, if she remains silent, why would Esther perish but not everybody else? Tackling the second question first, is it because Word is certain to get out now that she's a Jew? Perhaps because Hathak and, and others within the palace now know both about her Jewishness and now they know about her relationship to the man responsible for triggering all this, Mordecai. Is that why? Or is it because of her close proximity to Ahasuerus and the enraged Haman that she will surely perish? Or is it because the anger of the Lord will be kindled against her because of her failure to repent of her silence? to do what she must do in obedience to God. It's not clear. It's not clear why Mordecai says she'll be unable to escape 
if she remained silent? We can't answer that question. But as for the first question about Mordecai's confidence that deliverance will rise from another place, if she remained silent, deliverance will rise from where? Well, this is the clearest example of what the commentator Alec Matir calls the God-shaped hole in the narrative. It's a lot of God-shaped holes in the book of Esther, and this is the largest God-shaped hole. Mordecai clearly means that God, who is present with his people, even when he seems absent, God will deliver his people, regardless of Esther's decision. But why is Mordecai, Mordecai so confident of that? Because God has promised it. He's promised three things. One, God has promised through nearly all of the prior prophets who had warned of or who had announced or had otherwise bemoaned the judgment of God's people in exile because of their unrepentance, God had promised a future turning of His people toward Him in repentance and faith. Sometimes explicitly described as a new covenant that was to come. And thus God was clearly not going to allow all His people to be wiped out. He had promised a future glory. Second, as part of that glorious future, God had promised that a descendant of King David would arise who would rule over all the earth, fulfilling the promise given to Abraham through his offspring. All the families of the earth would be blessed. And thus God was clearly not going to allow his people to be wiped out, for the Messiah had not yet come. And third, God had promised his old covenant people that if they turned to him, in prayer, in repentance, as a nation, as they were now, that he would deliver them. Three promises. So the question for Mordecai is not whether the, the Lord will fulfill his promises. The question is whether the Lord will do so through Esther, which depends on whether she will choose to keep silent or to speak up. And so Mordecai asked, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Of course, the point of the story is that God has placed Esther exactly where he wants her for such a time as this. Just as God had raised up Joseph, son of Jacob, to become the second most powerful man in Egypt in order to save his people during a great famine at the end of Genesis. What Joseph's brothers had meant for evil, selling their own brother into slavery, resulting in years spent in an Egyptian prison, well, God had meant for good. God had meant it to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. So he had raised Joseph up to his position. Similarly, what King Ahasuerus had meant for evil, abducting every beautiful young virgin in his empire for his own satisfaction, what King Ahasuerus had meant for evil, God had meant for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. It's no less true for any of us. God has placed us exactly where he wants us even allowing great wrongs to be committed against us. See, the question is not whether the Lord will fulfill His promises and accomplish His purposes on the earth. He will. The question is whether He will do so through us, which depends on whether we will choose to keep silent or speak up. Will you keep silent? Or will you speak up when communicating with wayward family members? Will you keep silent? Or will you speak up and communicating with that wayward friend or church member or coworker, or neighbor. People who are hurtling towards an eternal destruction in desperate need for someone to speak up and tell them about the deliverance that God promises to those who will repent and believe. 
to tell them about the only perfect deliverer of God's people. The one who was not only willing to risk his life to try to spare the lives of his people, but who deliberately came into the world for the very purpose of dying in the place of his people. Jesus is that long-promised Messiah that Mordecai was waiting for, this promised son of David. He came to live the life of obedience that we have all failed to live. He came to die in our place and to rise from the grave in victory over sin and death. He is the King of kings. And unlike the little petty kings of the earth who make themselves unapproachable to their people, this king, well, he joyfully invites you to enter into his throne room. This king gladly holds out his golden scepter, his cross, so that you may live. Place your hand upon that cross. Accept that He died for you. Repent of your sins and receive eternal life through Him. He will build His church. He will save His people. The only question is, will God accomplish His purposes through you or despite you? No matter the circumstances in which you find yourself, no matter what sins of others or yourself have led to your circumstances, you can be confident that God has placed you where He has placed you for such a time as this. That you may seize hold of every opportunity to stand up and speak out about God's deliverance of His people through His Messiah. So with this challenge now from Mordecai, how will Esther respond? Final verses, verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, the capital, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Now what's the point of this fast? She says, hold a fast on my behalf. It's undeniably a call to pray for her, right? To pray that she may have the courage to speak as she ought. Like the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 6, where he says, pray for me that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel as I ought to speak. It's a call to pray for her boldness. But clearly, it's also a a call to pray for the desired outcome of that boldness, right? A call to pray for the deliverance of God's people. Fast. Pray for me. Pray for my success. As Paul commands us, Ephesians 6, as Esther demonstrates, Esther 4, we are to pray. We are to pray not only for our own boldness to speak out and for the desired outcome of that boldness, the deliverance of others, but we're to pray this for one another. We're to ask others to pray this for us. So pray for me. Pray for each other. Pray for yourselves that God may accomplish His good purposes through us as we open our mouths to speak. As James wrote, we saw it a few weeks ago, there is power in the prayers of the righteous. So pray and ask others to pray. So Esther tells Mordecai to call the fast. She continues, second half, verse 16. Then, after this three-day fast, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. 
having resolved to take her stand. Now she's the one giving the orders. But with the words, if I perish, I perish. Is she demonstrating a lack of faith that God is going to use her faithfulness? No, not at all. While there's no denying what she must do, there's no denying what, what faithfulness requires of her in this moment. Even so, she's been given no promise that her own life will be spared or that it would be through her act of obedience that God will preserve his people. So it's right for her to say, if I perish, I perish. The only promise for her, as the only promise for us, is that God will use her obedience for his good purposes, even if that means her death. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, they had been given no promise that God would not let them be thrown into that fiery furnace. Or that if God did let them be thrown in, that he would supernaturally deliver them from it. They had no promise. And they acknowledged that as they stood before King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on earth, in his furious rage. They acknowledged that they had no promise that they would survive. And yet they took their stand anyway. Daniel, a few chapters later, Daniel chapter 6, he had been given no promise that God would not let him be thrown into the lion's den, or that if God did let him be thrown in, that God would supernaturally deliver him from it. He had no promise. In those cases, God did deliver them, but he had given them no promise that he would, and they obeyed him anyway. That's the point. Saying, if I perish, I perish. You see, God often accomplishes his purposes through the faithful deaths of his people. Above all, Jesus won by dying. And after him, the first martyr, Stephen's faithful death in the streets of Jerusalem in Acts 7, it helped to make the gospel known. As did Herod's slaying of James, the brother of John, in Acts 12. And the many years of imprisonment and eventual execution of the apostle Paul. All this bore witness to the gospel and spread it. Church history records that all of the apostles, except John, were executed for their faith. It didn't stop with them. Whether we look at the early church with men like Ignatius and Polycarp and Justin Martyr, whether we skip ahead a millennia to men like Jan Hus, who was burned alive by the Pope in 1415 for publicly teaching that salvation comes to all who repent and believe the gospel, not through purchasing indulgence from the church. The very same issue that Martin Luther spoke about a hundred years later, on October 31st, 1517, with the event that we now call the start of the Protestant Reformation. And while Luther miraculously did avoid death, hundreds who came after him, even just in the next 50 years, did not. And yet, God was accomplishing his purposes through the faithful deaths of his people. Their bold stands for the gospel and the face of death, it bore witness to the liberating truth of that gospel. And thousands others saw that truth and believed that truth and were saved by the deaths of God's people. If I perish, I perish. Those are the right words. Though you and I may never be faced with the threat of death for refusing to remain silent about the faith that saves, that doesn't mean that these words, if I perish, I perish, have no place on our lips. They do. Not just as an expression of our willingness to die, if it ever came to that, but as an expression of our determination to die to self daily. 
No longer living for ourselves, but for Him who for our sake died and was raised. 2 Corinthians 5.15 Willing to, to sacrifice comfort and pleasure for the sake of serving Christ's kingdom. Willing to, to risk jobs and promotions. Willing to risk close friendships. Willing to risk familial relationships for the sake of seeking the salvation of others. As we die to ourselves. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We must die to self. We must have these words of Esther upon our lips. If I perish, I perish. I will live for the sake of the kingdom. In honor of the, the 506th anniversary of the start of the, the Reformation, with thousands of other churches around the world today, we began our service by singing the, the battle hymn of the Reformation. Martin Luther's, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And Luther, like Esther, he knew what it was like to go before the most powerful men on earth, to put his life on the line in order to speak out for the sake of the souls of others. And that gives even greater weightiness to the closing line of his hymn. As he says, let good and kindred, kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Never mind who you've always thought you were. What matters is who you are now going to be in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Father, we pray that you will help us to say with Esther, if I perish, I perish, to die to self daily. Help us to say with the apostles Peter and John before the Sanhedrin who put Jesus to death, to say we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. May words be given to us in opening our mouths boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel to those around us. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.